Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. I want to first thank all of you who help us in student ministries at Grace Church. I see many faces, student ministries, junior high, high school, and college. Uh, we couldn't do those ministries without you, so thank you very much. Yes, yes, my daughter is getting married, uh, and my wife told me before I left the house here to tell those of you that are in the wedding that the dresses are in and you need to be fitted. So there's a couple of you here that applies to. I don't know who that is, but I want to first tell you that, identify with you that I was not a very good student when I was in college. I was not a good student at all. I uh, basically never studied in high school, and I got out of high school in 1964, and there was this thing called the draft starting for this little conflict in Vietnam. I said, I think I'll go to college. Uh, I uh, spent a couple years in college basically getting C's and not applying myself. And I woke up one day in my junior year and said, if I'm ever going to get out of here, I'm going to have to start focusing on a degree of some kind. So I, I started working towards a degree in business. I realized that I didn't have enough credits to graduate in four years, so I had to take summer school. I needed about 12 more credits. So I went to summer school and I applied myself and I got almost a four-point average in summer school. I took golf, <laughs> tennis, volleyball, and bowling. Yes, bowling. They offered bowling at that school. I, I was phenomenal. I was phenomenal, but I, I messed up somewhere. I, I got all A's except for one course I got a B in. I don't remember what it is. Anyway, I dramatically incre increased my grade point average. When I graduated, I think I had a 2.7. Now, those of you, those of you, you can use this. Now, I want to tell you how you can use this to your advantage in applying for a job because the world is really run by C students. Okay, those of you who identify, the world is really run by C students. Okay? It's not, it's not the A students. It's not the A students. They have these great ideas, but it's not practical. You can't ever use the stuff that they come up with. They're so esoteric. It means nothing. We're the doers. We're the worker bees. We make things happen. Use that. Use that as you do interviews. It works all the time. People say, I like this guy. You know, he sounds like he's really solid. He, he sounds like he can get something done around here, you know? So use that to your advantage. I was... Uh, after I got out of college, I, I was in the Marine Corps for four years, uh, spent a year in Vietnam, uh, got out of that, didn't know for sure what I wanted to do, started interviewing. I thought I should get into sales and make the big bucks, so I, I went to, uh, I interviewed with IBM, got a job, but initially they told me I wasn't smart enough. In those days, they gave you tests, and if you didn't pass the test, then they wouldn't take you. The first round, I didn't pass the test. I realized I should have studied a tad harder in college. At that point, I said, no, let me take the test over again. They kind of liked me, so they let me do that. Uh, I passed it. I was going to sell computers. I thought, get in the fast lane. This is where it's at in sales. Uh, on the way back to Kansas City, where I was going to start, a friend of mine was working for Carnation. We stopped by to see him. He convinced me that I ought to take a job there at Carnation as a supervisor in a warehouse in Illinois. And for some reason, I took that job. I don't really know why. And I was there for three years. Uh, I've been out here for 15 years now, have risen up through the ranks. And, and if, you, if, you want to, if you want somebody that is successful by the world standards in terms of uh, power and influence and economics, then I guess I'm one of those people. But I can tell you quite candidly that I have risen that ladder, I've climbed that ladder, I can look out over that, and I can tell you there's nothing there that's satisfying. Now, at this point, you all say, 
give me a shot at it. You don't know me, okay? Let me make the big bucks. I can handle it. It is a rare person today, a rare person that does not self-destruct when it comes to uh, their finances or handling power and success. I have an organization of about a thousand people that work ultimately for me. Um, and many days I say I think I should be doing something else uh, if I was perfectly candid with you. Um, I have a lot of friends who are uh, who are who have a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of influence. Most of those are sad cases uh, where they're, they're, if they have a family, it's in, it's destroyed. Uh, their ego is massive and they're very hard to work with and deal with. I, I thought all during that period of time I was a Christian. I was a Lutheran. I thought I was a Christian at that time. I really wasn't uh, about 12 years ago. Somebody dragged me over to Grace Church and I had to confront the fact that I was just playing a game. I got saved through that process. I, I've, I've watched for 15 years Christians in the workplace, and I thought I might give you some of my observations on what I see. And what I see, I'm not very impressed with at all. It is a rare, it is a rare person, a rare Christian today that can keep his balance in the workplace. Uh, and it's, it's frankly, is, is quite sad. Uh, I see two kinds of people out there all the time. First person is what I call a walking billboard. He's a person who says, and I've got a couple of those working in my organization right now. They're they're a person that say, I need to flaunt my Christianity. I want everyone to know that I'm a Christian. So I'm going to go in the door on the first day, and they're going to know that. And you you can tell them, you can see them a long ways away. They have the fish symbol over here. They have the fish hook here. They have the baby feet over on this side or somewhere on here. And they got the Jesus love you button. And then their desk, you walk by their desk, they got their Bible open and a few highlighted verses right there. So you can see that. Anybody walking by, they say, this verse is for you. This is for you, right here. They've got their Christian calendar right there with their Bible verse that they're trying to memorize as the day goes on. they got their tracks over here. They're all set up. People walk by them. They go, whoa, just stay away from them. They do weird things. They turn off people. A uh, great young girl I had working for me one time, little, little cute black girl great personality, but she always wore this red beret, red in white letters that said Jesus. Every outfit she wore, she had this red beret on her head. And her heart was right. She was trying to do what was right, but behind her back, most people were making fun of her. I have a friend, uh, I have a, another guy who's a Christian that works for me right now. His name is George. George is kind of weird. Um, he... He starts to work at 7.30. If you see him before at 7.30, he has this Hawaiian shirt on. It's always the same Hawaiian shirt. It's a loud Hawaiian shirt. I say, George, why are you wearing that Hawaiian shirt? He said, it's my own time. It's not company time. I can wear what I want. I said, George, you know, why are you doing it? I like Hawaiian shirts. I like this shirt. It's the same shirt every day. Now, people know he's a believer. Um... I don't know why he wears a Hawaiian shirt. He likes a Hawaiian shirt. At 7.30, he takes it off, puts on another shirt, puts a tie on. Now, I don't know why he does that, and I've stopped trying to change him. Uh, he just does that. And you see what happens all the time. These people, they do more damage than they do good because when you're trying to share with someone, the other people always bring these people up to me. Okay, They always they start talking about being, becoming a Christian, and they go, oh, you mean like George? 
I said, well, no, not like, well, he's a Christian, isn't he? Well, yeah, he is, but I don't want you to be like him. Well, why not? Well, do I have to wear that? Do I have to do these things? No, you don't have to do that. Well, why do they do that? Well, I don't know why they do that. They just do that. They, in their mind, they say they associate becoming a Christian with doing that kind of stuff. And then there's another group of people who are always critical of Christians and think you're, you're a hypocrite. And what they do is they watch these people. They watch them real closely and they watch them and they see when they lie, cheat, steal, whatever they do, so they can run around and tell their friends, see, they say they're a Christian, but they're really not because they do the same stuff everyone else does. And they use that against you also in the same way. Listen to me. When you, when you enter the workplace, I want you to do one thing. This is a novel approach. I want, you, I want you to forget the fact that you're a Christian. I want you to forget the fact that you want to have a testimony. I want you to just show up for work and try this. Just work. Try keeping your mouth shut and being the best employee you can possibly be in your organization. Try to show some initiative. Try to do what people tell you to do. Try to help other people around you with their job. And just maybe, just maybe through that process, some of the fruit of the Spirit will start leaking out in the process. People will know you're a great employer. Your employer should say, this is the best guy I got. I wish I had more people like him. Without knowing the fact that you're a Christian. He should be saying these things. When they hire people, they should say, you go over and work with Willie for a while. He's the best guy we got. I want you to learn to be just like him. People are coming to you saying, gee... What makes you a great employee? Now here you've got this great opportunity to say, well, you know, I, I work hard, I apply myself, but, you know, there's other drivers that are motivating me, and that's because I love the Lord. That's a great opportunity to witness. Because you see, you have credibility. Those people that I talked about before, they don't have credibility. You know, the reality is they're always poor workers, all those people. They misinterpret their call. Their call is to work. Your employer hired you to work. He didn't hire you to save the lost. The reality is your employer doesn't care about the spiritual well-being of his workforce at all. He just wants you to work. Those people tend to be real poor workers. In that warehouse I worked in, in Illinois, I was a supervisor, and most of the guys drove forklifts, and one of these guys, he was a Baptist. In those days, I thought Baptists are a little strange. They're a little bit too radical for me. I was a Lutheran. Um, but... And he was, he was always trying to get me to come to church. He was always trying to share with me, and I didn't want to listen to him. And one of the things that he offended me the most about was the fact that he was a poor worker. I was going after him one time, trying to find him, because he hadn't done some things that I told him to do. And here he was sitting on his forklift in the middle of this heavy traffic aisle. A lot of people driving around. He was sitting there stopped. I could see his head was down. I couldn't Coming up behind him, I couldn't tell what he was doing. Got up close to him, I could see he was sitting there praying. In the middle of the day, in the middle of this heavy traffic aisle, other people driving around him. I was on his case because he wasn't doing anything, and there he is sitting praying. Now, is that the place you should sit down and pray? I mean, what, what kind of testimony is that to all the other people around you? Now, I'm mad at this guy. Okay, now I'm wondering, do, do, you, do you interrupt him when he's praying or not? Should I give him another minute here? What, what should I do? You know, I'm thought, I don't know. Could do it. So I finally stopped praying, and I said, hey, what are you doing? And I shoot him out. The reality is he's probably sitting there praying for me. That's probably the reality of what was happening, but I wasn't going to listen to him because he didn't have any credibility. You see, most of those employees in that category tend to be poor workers. They have no credibility. People won't listen to them. 
Now that's the smallest, that tends to be the smallest majority of the people I see have that kind of a testimony. The other ones, which is where most of you will fall, is that you will have no testimony whatsoever. You will completely be absorbed by the organization. When someone says, this guy's a believer, your first reaction will always be, huh, you got to be kidding me. I've seen that guy. I've seen him do this, this, this. Can't be. And no, no, he is. He really is a believer. Most of the people just melt in to the organization and you have, and they have absolutely no influence. I'm amazed at how quickly people change. I was in a meeting in Kansas City many years ago and I wasn't a believer then and it was a, I was with a lot of other people that were my same age, uh, fairly, fairly young in those days. Uh, newly married, had families and so forth, and we were identifying with one another. It seemed like a great bunch of guys. One night we were sitting in this room about 10, 11 o'clock, and somebody came in, started buzzing them, started talking to a few groups of people. A couple guys left, and the guy talked to a few other people, and all of a sudden one guy came up to me and says, Hey, do you know if there's a drugstore that's still open tonight? Do you know where there would be one? I said, I don't know where a drugstore would be open. I, I hardly know where I am. He says, okay, and the two of them left. And I asked this other guy, what do they want to know where a drugstore is at this time of night? Well, they're looking for a condoms. I said, what do they want condoms for this time of night? He said, well, didn't you hear? There's a hooker down in room, whatever it was, down the other, you know, end of the hallway. There's a long story for why that hooker was in that room, but that hooker was free. And I, I always remember that story because it showed me how quickly people change. They were going to make some significant decisions in their life were going to be made that night that might have long-term consequences. And we're standing here talking about our family and our careers and all this kind of stuff, and within a few minutes, they change dramatically. Now you say, well, I'll never change that quickly. I'll, I'll never compromise what I what I believe you say, I'll never lie. An interesting, an interesting thing happens nowadays. A lot of people are paid for performance nowadays. A lot of people get a bonus nowadays. Most people in our organization above the level of managers, you would get a bonus on top of your normal salary. It's an interesting thing that happens in the area of lying when you get a bonus. Now this money is, let, let's just say, you know, it's three, four grand, and you get that at the end of the year if you do three or four things that we agree upon ahead of time. Now, if you like most people, you spend the money before you even get it. So you've already run up your charge cards, okay? It's getting towards the end of the year. Now, all of a sudden, you start looking at this three or four grand, and you say, I, I need that money. I need it real bad. Now, I've got to get these five things done, and only, you know, two of them, I'm not going to make it unless I can figure out a way to finagle these numbers or finagle something to make it look like I accomplished that. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat through discussions listening people explain to me how they achieve these goals knowing full well that they are just blatantly lying. Now you say that will never happen to me. I don't know. I kind of I doubt that. The other, you say I'll never, I'll never cuss. That's something I'll never do in the organization. And another interesting phenomenon I notice, uh, you go to a meeting and let's say it's a meeting with a fairly significant guy in the organization. If he starts out the meeting by cussing, you can you can watch within a matter of minutes that everyone else who joins in the discussion generally starts peppering their phrases with a few four-letter words at a time because the leader has established the fact that cussing is okay. Now, I have 
I have friends that work with me are Christians. And it's almost as if you have to cuss to make your point. I mean, that's kind of the implied thing there, is if you don't cuss, you must not be really mad. You must not be really serious. This guy's name is Phil. We were in a meeting just a few weeks ago, and he can get emotional, and he lost it, and he reeled off a couple four-letter words at a guy. And after the meeting, I looked at him, and he said, all right, all right, I lost it. I said, yeah, I, I, you did lose it. He said, but I had you, Rob. He was lying. You know that. He was lying. He was saying things that weren't true. And I said, you're right. He was lying. I had to get him, I had, and I got him. I said, you got him. You got him okay. But how quickly, how quickly we compromise. Why do we do that? Because we fear men more than God. We seek the praises of men more than God. The chief cause of much of the compromising you do is lack of contentment. I want to talk a little bit about having a consistent Christian testimony and what contentment means to that. You have a lot more stresses ahead of you than people before you did. We have a large market research group, and let me give you some statistics about what some facts about what you'll be looking at in the year 2000, that's not too far away. The biggest single problem you're going to have to deal with is the speed of change. It's frightening nowadays. Nothing stays the same. Sociologists are now starting to redefine what a generation is. A generation to them now is four years. You used to think of a generation as 20 years. What does that mean? That there's enough significant change occurring that we should start calling a generation four years instead of 20 years. That's tremendous frustration that you're going to be faced with. A Cray computer, that's the biggest hummer out there nowadays, cranks all those numbers. I don't know what they do with all that stuff. But if technology increases at the same rate in the next 10 years that it did in the last 10 years, then all of that horsepower that's available in a Cray computer will be in a laptop computer if it just continues at that same rate. What are you going to do with all that stuff? I don't know. I have no idea. We have more information than you know we can do it. In the year 2000, 80% of all managers will be knowledge workers. Knowledge workers. That means they move information around and get it to hands of the worker bees who actually do something with it. You say, that sounds like a great job. I'd love to have it. I want to be a knowledge manager. It's a miserable job because the information is never right. Nobody's ever happy with it. It's either too much, not enough, it's wrong, it's too cheap, it's too expensive, it's, it's never on time, it's too quick, it's too late. <coughs> An engineer, 50% of an engineer's knowledge will be obsolete every five years. That means after 10 years, if you're in a technical profession, after 10 years, almost everything you learn is obsolete. Tremendous frustrations in trying to deal with change. There'll be enormous inequities in the workforce. In the year 2000, one in three will be a minority worker. One in three will be a minority. You've heard of EEOC, all of these government requirements on hiring and balancing your workforce to keep the right minority balance in there. You will probably be caught up in the fact that someone of a minority will be promoted above you, around you, or something to get their workforce in balance. Tremendous inequities exist. You say, I'll never work for a woman. I'm a man, and there's no way I'm going to work for a woman. 60% of women... All women will be in the workforce in the year 2000, 60% of them. You say, I'm a man and I'm going to love my wife and I'll never be tempted to have an extramarital affair. 
60% of all women will be in the workforce. It's not uncommon for me to go to a meeting and I'm the only white male in the meeting. Most of the other people are women. And the fact is most of these women are probably divorced. Now you say, I won't be tempted by all that. What I'm telling you is that there's going to be an enormous number of women in the workforce, men, and if you don't think that's a temptation, you're going to have to wake up. Now, women, you say, I'm not going to work. There's no way I'm going to work. I'm going to stay home, raise my children. Seven in ten, seven out of ten new homeowners will need two incomes to own that home. Seven out of ten. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to be in that bottom third. I doubt it. Probably going to have to go to work. You say you don't, oh, and the other thing, women, you're still going to be paid less, 30% less than your male counterpart. You'll still be paid 30% less than your male counterpart. You say you don't understand me. I'm going to get one of those great jobs. Today, one in 20 is promoted into a top job like mine. One out of 20 people in the workforce is promoted into that. Year 2000, one in 100 will be promoted into that same job. You've heard of, of, of downsizing, you've heard of restructuring in corporate America, that's what's happening. We're taking all that middle management out of that. We're flattening out the organization. Basically, we're taking people, if you want me to be real candid, in the range of 50 to 80 to 90 grand, those good salaries, knocking them out saying, why do we need to pay this guy this much? I can hire somebody for 40 grand all day long. Now, that could be you very frustrated in that whole process of trying to make a decent living. <clears throat> there will be fewer opportunities for you. Everyone is now starting to say that the American dream is gone. American dream is, I'm going to outperform my parents. I'm going to have more stuff. I'm going to have a better job than my parents have. We know that's gone because, listen to this now, four out of ten of you, four out of ten of you will graduate from here, you will start out on your own, and you will move back in with your parents at least once before you finally make it on your own. Unheard of in my time, unheard of to actually move back into my parents to say I couldn't make it. Four out of ten of you in the year 2000 will move back into your home with your parents at least once before you finally make it. The American dream is gone and that is creating a great deal of frustration for you. You also will have no time. Today 45% of the food you buy, we sell food, sell a lot of food. Um, 45% of your food dollar is spent away from home. 55% of your food, of, of the dollars you spend on food you eat at home. Year 2000, those numbers will be reversed, which means you'll eat more food away from home than you will at home. Fast food outlets. 50% uh, of the food that a fast food outlet sells goes through the window, as we say in the business nowadays. It used to be that you went to McDonald's, you ate the meal there. Nowadays, 50% of everything they sell goes through the window. It used to be that you went, took the food home, and you ate it at home. Now, almost all the food is consumed in the car. We actually have people in our company who are working on making food that's on a stick. You know, chicken on a stick, I don't know, a burger on the stick, something. So you can sell it to a guy, and they can eat it while they're driving. You think that's stupid. No, it's, everyone's trying to get into this. Something on a stick so that you can eat it conveniently. Nobody has a meal together anymore, it looks like. Today, today the average housewife spends 30 minutes preparing a meal. The year 2000, she'll spend 15 minutes preparing the meal. 
I could, I could talk a lot about the, uh, the family and how that's being destroyed through this whole process. Another interesting phenomenon is no one knows when the workday starts or stops anymore today. Very interesting. You used to have to go, it used to be the day when you actually couldn't do any work until you went to your office, some building. It was impossible for you to do any work. So when you work eight to five, that was it. When you went home, there was no way you could do any work anymore. That's not true today. Most people's day, they don't know when it starts and when it ends. Why is that? Computers, voicemail, uh, uh, electronic uh, mail through the computers. You can talk back and forth to people. You can send messages. We have faxes. We have mobile phones. We have all sorts of communications that you don't know when your day starts and when it ends. What does that mean? The average person is working a lot longer today, and you will be working a lot longer than your counterparts did. If you think an eight-hour day is normal, probably a 10- or a 12-hour day is more normal. Your workplace is changing. The issue that I have before you is how are you going to respond to that change? Most people are chronically discontent nowadays. Most people are chronically discontent. And all of these inequities make them angry. And they always want to bring it to my attention. That's something is irregular. Life is not fair. And if you think it is fair, if you think you're going to have that perfect job, then you're a fool. Uh, there'll be inequities in pay, there'll be inequities in promotions, there'll be inequities in, in the job in general. I had to deal with two of these a while back. Uh, they can easily make you bitter. Uh, several years ago, I got promoted to uh, the job of manager of all of these distribution centers. That was a good job, and, and, and I had in my mind that if I could just get to the point that I could make 30 grand, that life would be simple. And this job, the raise I got, make, got me to make more than 30 grand. And I was really happy. And I thought that that, would be, that was going to be the solution to some of my cash flow problems, was getting to 30 grand. So I was happy. I was very happy with that. And when my boss, we started talking through this thing and the other, the other pay for the other people in the organization, he gave me all of the salary records of everyone else but the managers of these other distribution centers. And he, his comment was, well, he, he'd just like to keep them and... Because uh, he liked talking to them, and he liked uh, telling them what their raise was going to be at the end of the year. didn't bother me. I, I never gave it a second thought. The end of the year came, and we talked about a salary increase for these guys. We agreed to it and so forth. And <clears throat> So he called these guys up and gave them their salary increase. And one of the guys called me back and said, Robert, really enjoy working for you, and I really am thankful for the raise I got. And you know, I never thought that I'd make $30,000. And I'm, I'm on the phone now trying to act real cool like I know this. And I said, oh, 30000 I actually made about $1,000 more than I did. And so I, I was sitting there, hung up the phone, and I said, we got a big problem. we got a big problem here. And the problem is my boss. And I said, this can't be right. The guy must not understood what he makes. And so I called payroll. I said, what does the guy make? He makes 30000 I said, this can't be. He can't make 30000 He's got a company car. I don't have a company car. I'm living in Los Angeles. High cost of living. This sucker was in Kansas. I mean, we got a major inequity here. So I go into my boss. I said, you know, something funny, really funny happened here. I just don't believe it. <laughs> I don't know. 
out of debt. He just told me he made 30000 and he just came out of his chair and says, that's not true. That is not true. That's absolutely not true. And for a while, he was so convicting that I thought, I must be wrong. i got to be wrong. And I said, well, I called payroll, and they said he makes thirty grand. That's not true. That's impossible. That couldn't happen. I said, well, I don't know, but he's got a company car, and I live in L.A., and I'm getting hosed on this whole deal. He said, no, it's not true. I'll check into that and make sure that isn't the case. So at that point, I knew I had trapped him in a major lie, and he was into his face-saving mode. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, after that, I, had, I, I went home and I said, hey, why am I complaining about all this? I always wanted to make 30 grand. I'm making 30 grand. I'm, I'm happy. Why can't I be content with that? Why can't I live with that inequity? And I finally rationalized it in my own mind that I was wrong for what I was doing. I just turned it over to the Lord and said, look, I, I'm happy. I'm not going to complain about this. If this guy doesn't do anything about it, that's fine with me. Well, a week or two later, he came back in and he never apologized. He never claimed, He never fessed up to the fact that he was just being cheap. That's all he was, just being cheap. Uh, and he... You know, he gave me a token increase, and I was I was happier, I guess, than what I was before. <laughs> a few years ago, he was retiring. I was a, I was a director of of distribution. He was a vice president. I wanted that job, um, so I started you know doing cute things to try to make him look like I should be the guy. I should be the logical guy for this. But he never let on. He never tell me tip his hand that. You know, Rob, you're my guy. And after several months of doing stupid things, I realized that um, that I was real happy in the job I had. That I was real content in my job. And if that, if I never got another promotion, that I would be happy. And I finally turned it over to the Lord and said, "Look, I'm happy. If this is what you want me to do, then I'll do this, and I'll be I'll be happy doing this till I retire." Because I really was. But I had to work through that in my own mind. And I had to stop making a fool out of myself, basically. And, and this is the absolute truth. I think it was about two days later after I prayed and turned that over to the Lord that he called me in his office. He had never, ever mentioned a word about his retirement or who his successor was. And he sat me down and said, Rob, you know, I'm going to retire at the end of the year. And we have to start getting you ready to take over. And then he, he started talking about stuff, and basically I wasn't listening to him. I was sitting in that chair saying, what a fool I've been, that the Lord wouldn't give me this job till I told him I didn't want it, till I told him I'm, I'm happy, I'll be useful right where I am. Dramatic, one of the most powerful stories I've ever had in my own life for how the Lord has worked, but it, he only worked because I first said that I'll be obedient, I'll be, I'll be faithful to do what, what you want me to do. I've told you about two kinds of people that I see out there. I'm not impressed, frankly, with the Christian testimony that exists today. I've shown you that there will be even more frustrations for you in the workplace than exist today. You can be a force for righteousness. There is no question about that. You can be salt and light in the world. I used to think that God didn't care about 
what, what was happening in my workplace. I don't know why. I was, I was stupid. I, I never prayed about things at work. I always figured God was concerned about the big picture stuff, you know, your, your ministry, things like that, what's happening at church. But when I stepped into my work environment, I thought that God didn't care about those things. And so for many years, I never prayed about those things. I, I came to realize one day that I was deadly wrong, that God cares a great deal about me and my testimony in the workplace. There are, there are times today that I can't wait to get up in the morning and pray because I know there's a lot of things that are happening in that day, that week, that are beyond my control. And I can't wait to turn those over to the Lord. And it's amazing. The most satisfaction I've had in recent years has been watching the Lord work in small ways in my work where He has preserved my testimony. He has preserved me from a lot of nonsense that could have happened to me. And it's it's been a tremendous joy in my life to just watch the Lord work. A verse that I go to probably a thousand times is Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. It's only been in recent years that I've come to understand how powerful that those words are, surpasses all comprehension. I've learned to be content, but I've only learned that through trial and error. You see, the issue is not the, the inequities that exist or the people that are, are creating the problems in your life. The, the issue is you and how you respond to those inequities. You're going to spend about a third or more of your life with people who have radically different religious beliefs than you do. You're going to spend most of your life with people who don't know the Lord. You can be an example to them or you can be just like them. You can be salt and light and you can be a force for righteousness. But the issue is you must choose each day. You know, the Lord created us and he wants us to worship uh, he wants us to worship him and love him, but he gave us something that's a blessing and a curse. It's called a free will. At some point in your life you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you used your free will there. But it didn't stop there. To have a consistent Christian testimony in the workplace, you have to choose daily who you will serve. You can serve men, and you can get a lot of satisfaction and a lot of praise from them, but I'm here to tell you that it, it doesn't last, and there's no real satisfaction in that. There are many other things that I wanted to tell you today, and I have... I've, I've only seen a couple people come to know the Lord in those 18 years. I'm, at work they call me, I'm very religious. That's the term they use for me at work. I'm very religious. What does that mean? A guy was in my office and he said, he, was, he almost died of a heart attack and he, where I was trying to turn it to spiritual things and he said, oh, I'm a religious, Rob. And, and then he hesitated, well, not quite as religious as you are. 
You see, that's that's the way you're known generally as you're real you're real serious about this stuff. You know, I actually go to church every day. We or every week we um, I had to give a um, Yeah, I was at a retirement program, and, and they, I didn't realize this, but they were going to play a little clip from uh, some kind of music as you were walking up to do whatever you're going to do in the program. The girl ahead of me, name was Mary, and they played Proud Mary as she was walking up there. <clears throat> I started walking up there, and they played the, the jingle from the commercial of Mr. Clean. A bald-headed guy, you know that. So that's that's what I took that as a compliment. That's the way people perceive me in the workplace. I believe that I have a, a testimony. I have failed more often than I have succeeded, but God is faithful. Thank you very much.